Good morning, everybody. How many like to play games? Come on, let me see your hand. You enjoy games? I did. Growing up as a child, loved uh, playing board games at the family dining table. Did the same with our kids as we were raising them, and it's a lot of fun. However, some of us are playing the wrong kind of games, and they're more spiritual and relational and emotional in nature. And so we're in week two of a message series called Games We Play, and I'll get to that message here in just a minute. First of all, though, let me tell you about a couple of things you need to know about. Uh, number one, on your way out today, uh, we have plate lunches for sale. So we've, we've got lunch for you. All you got to do is just purchase a, a plate lunch. It's going to support our El Salvador Missions Outreach team. We're excited about a team of folks right here from Crossroads that will be headed down uh, to South America, uh, there in El Salvador, reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, they're raising funds today uh, through this plate lunch sale. Uh, I think it's rice dressing, is that right? Jambalaya. Oh, jambalaya, yeah. And uh, you're going to enjoy it, and you're going to be a blessing all at the same time. Uh, $7 a plate, you can pick that up on the way out. And then men, hey guys, tonight is Beast Feast. It's one of the uh, best events for our guys all year long. If you haven't already uh, purchased your ticket, you want to grab one on the way out. They're very reasonable, $10 uh, per guy. And listen, uh, you can pick one up for a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, brother-in-law, whoever, and, uh, and bring them with you. And it's going to be a great, great time uh, uh, the Beast Feast, the serving of the wild game, all kicks off about 5 o'clock. But pre-Beast uh, Feast, we have our car show. We have more antique cars entered this year than ever before. We've got more guys competing with the uh, wild game cook-off than ever before. It's going to be a great time. We want you here, and I hope I'll see you this afternoon. Car show's at 3. Um, Beast Feast kicks off at 5, and it will be a great time. How many of you guys remember the game Sorry? It was one of our favorite growing up. Uh, when I was a kid, we loved uh, that table game Sorry. It was actually uh, released in 1934. So the game has been around for a while. And uh, if you remember the game, the tagline for the game, it's right there on the box, used to be on the television commercial. The tagline uh, of the game, or the tagline was, the game of sweet revenge. Now, when you think about that tagline, you realize people aren't really sorry. <laughs> if you're playing the game for sweet revenge sake, then you can't say you're actually really sorry. And if you remember how it worked, uh, the way it worked is you would be dealt cards. And, and as you picked up a card, you might get an opportunity to advance or you might get an opportunity to set the person playing the game with you back a few spaces or maybe all the way even back to the starting point. And when you did that to them, you were supposed to tell them, Sorry. And so what the game was doing was instilling in the psyche of all America a, um, a play of f some false regret, right? And I think the game did a pretty good job because I think all of us kind of play that game relationally and emotionally. We say we're sorry, but then we keep on treating people the same way we were treating them, right? And uh, that is a, a game, look at me, that is a game that no one wins with, and so we should not play the game of sorry. What we ought to do, though, is consider what the Bible says about real sorrow, about godly sorrow. And it's found right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want to share a passage of Scripture with you. Let me give you a little bit of context for this passage because this is the Apostle Paul's second letter that he's written to the Christians there in Corinth. His first letter 
uh, included a, a huge rebuke of the folks there in that church. They were allowing things to go on that should have never gone on. They were allowing sin to take place in people's lives and act as though it weren't even happening. And they would just turn a blind eye. And it was gross, immoral behavior on the part of one man in particular that in his first letter, Paul said he had turned over to Satan to buffet that man so that he, his, ultimately his soul could be saved. Now, what happens between 1st and 2nd Corinthians is uh, the man repents of his sin. The church starts doing right by uh, how they do church and how they do uh, the Christian faith. And so Paul is now commending them. But I want you to hear what he says in his second letter in the 7th chapter, verse 10. He says, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Now, I want you to notice that by inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, Paul is helping us to understand there's two kinds of sorrow. There's a worldly kind of sorrow, and you know it's a fallen world's mode of sorrow by one thing, by one characteristic. It doesn't include repentance. It says I'm sorry, but then it doesn't change its behavior. The Bible said that's a worldly kind of sorrow that leads to death. Paul says, I want you to fully embrace a godly sorrow, a godly sorrow, obviously, that will include repentance. Now, there are some of you that when I talk to you about the fact that God wants us sorrowful for some things, that God wants us to actually embrace a true, deep-seated sorrow over some things, you immediately push back on that concept because your version, your 21st century skewed version of Christianity is the idea that, oh, God doesn't want me sorry. God wants me happy. In fact, you've been convinced of and you've be believed the lie that that God's ultimate aim is to position us in life so that we're happy. I came to church to remind everybody, a thorough study of scripture is going to let you know God's not nearly as interested in your happiness as he is your holiness. That God wants to make you holy. In fact, this whole idea of happiness is such an absurd idea. I've always said the word happiness should be the word happiness because it all comes down to what's happening to us as to whether we're happy or not. Listen, what God wants to give us is joy. And some of the pushback that I would get from those, again, that have this skewed 21st version of Christianity that think that God just wants to make them happy. Part of the pushback is, hey, no, 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 Jeff, over and over, uh, God's word said he wants us to know joy. Well, what is true is the Bible tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. But notice, it's not our joy, it's the Lord's joy that the Bible is referencing here. What we ought to be focused on today is not what makes us happy, but what makes God happy. Are we pleasing God with our choices? Are we pleasing God with how we're treating one another? I want, to know, I want you to know that when you make pursuing the happiness of God your main aim in life, it is a form of holiness that will bring joy to the heart of God that he will share with you and it will position you 
in, in a position of great spiritual strength. So much of the church today is weak and we're defeated by left, left and right. And the reason is, is because we're just focused on what makes us happy instead of being the holy people of God that God has called us to and fully embracing a type of sorrow that leads to real repentance. So here's what I want to say to you today. And I really want you to wrap your heart around this. If you say you're sorry, but you continue to do the same things you're saying you're sorry for, you're just playing games. Now we do this relationally to one another. We say we're sorry and then we just keep on doing the very things we said we were sorry about. Guys, look at me. What kind of game is that that we go through? And we don't just do it between ourselves. We do this with God as well. We say we're sorry. We come to a service like this to, to demonstrate, oh, yes, we're sorry for the sin in our life. But then we go on sinning. We go on continuing to embrace the things that we said we're sorry about. What are you saying, Jeff? Look at me. I'm saying apologies without repentance is just manipulation. And this is the game we play. We try to manipulate one another by getting by for another day, another week, another month, by saying, oh yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's all gonna change, but then it never changes. And next month you're back saying you're sorry again for the same old thing that you said you were sorry for last month. Y'all are looking at me like I'm preaching at the wrong church. Y'all still glad you're here? Listen, no, no, no. God said he wants a sorrow within our life that actually leads us to true repentance and apologies without repentance is just our way of manipulating people. And if we're going to be honest, sometimes trying to manipulate God. Do we understand the term repentance? Let me just put it in the most basic definition that you could uh, really, really have of this whole idea that God's calling for when he tells us to repent. To repent is to make a 180 degree turn. In other words, I was headed in one direction, but by repentance, I stop moving in that direction, I turn around and I start heading the opposite direction that I was headed in before. In the way I treat the person I say that I love and yet I was just trying to manipulate, I start acting completely different than all those tactics I use to manipulate them. As it relates to my consecration and commitment to God, I stop doing things that I know break God's heart. And on the contrary, I start doing things that I know fills his heart with joy. That's real repentance. It's that 180 degree turn that all of us need to really, really embrace within our lives. In other words, if I was lying before, I'm gonna start getting honest now. If I was cheating before, I'm gonna be faithful now. If I was rude, I'm gonna now be kind. If I was selfish, I'm turning around and now I'm going to be thoughtful. Y'all with me? That's what real repentance looks like. Can I tell you what godly sorrow is not? Godly sorrow is not, wow, I'm sorry I got caught. Well, I'm so sorry that people now know that I'm not what I claim to be. I'm so sorry now that I can't continue to get away with the things I've been getting away with. That's not godly sorrow. Can I tell you what godly sorrow is not? Godly sorrow is not, man, I'm sorry there are consequences to my behavior. 
Godly sorrow is not, oh, I regret that this is going to cost me something. I regret that I'm, I'm not, again, going to continue to get away with things that I used to get away with. That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is where our heart breaks and we're filled with remorse that leads us to true repentance because we know we've broken God's heart and the last thing in the world we want to do is break the heart of the one who saved us and gave himself for us. I wish I could get some help here today. I heard a story about a guy, I heard a story about a guy that was, um, he was uh, in charge of customer service where he worked. And uh, he worked there at the counter and he had been working there for several months and this was his experience and any of you in customer service probably knows what this looks like. Uh, constantly people would come to his counter just mad as they could be. Something didn't work like it was supposed to work. They, they didn't get what they thought they were going to get. And he said, man, they were just so mean. And they would yell and they would scream and they would say ugly things. And uh, it, it, it just, it was getting the best of him. And uh, one day he's, he's there and there's another customer who yet again is just going off and he's starting to look at the man standing before him who's red in the face and and the veins are popping out on his forehead and, and, and spits flying out of his mouth and, and his eyes are beady and his, his fangs are bared. And, 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 and this, this guy said, all of a sudden it hit me. He looks like a monkey. He looks like an angry ape that didn't get his way. And, and the guy thought to himself, if he knew how he looked, I don't think he would behave this way. You know what the guy did? He went down and bought a big mirror and he put this big wall-sized mirror up behind the counter and then everybody that approached him had to look beyond the, him to their own image in the mirror. He said it changed like day and night. People still brought their complaints, but they weren't nearly as mean. They were much more, you know, uh, pleasant in how they presented the, the grief they had, right? And he said it made all the difference in the world. I came to church to remind every one of us that God said his word is a mirror that we can look into and see the characters within our flaw, so, uh, the flaws within our character. So we don't have to stay that way. Come on, y'all. We don't have to stay that way, but we can be changed by the glory of God. We can repent and do a 180 and start living a whole different life than what we once lived. Y'all with me? Now, let me talk about this godly sorrow. It's so important. One of the reasons it's so important is because healing requires that we be truly sorry. Healing requires that we be truly sorry. And some of you dismiss that statement that I made, that observation that I bring, because you don't think you need healing. Every one of us are broken in one way or another. Every one of us stand before God, flawed in some way. We need healing, whether it's physical healing we need or whether it's emotional or relational healing that we need. Come on, y'all. We need a healer. And healing is impossible without true godly sorrow in our lives. Listen to James chapter 5, verse 16, where James writes by inspiration and says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Notice that healing is contingent upon me owning what I've done and sinning against you. My healing is contingent upon me owning how I've wronged you in some way. And notice that this healing is not possible until I do it. 
and until we begin to pray for each other. I think so many people are remaining in a position of weakness and kind of spiritual infirmity simply because we are not owning the things we're doing to one another and we're not praying for one another. I've already mentioned that the game of sorrow involves apologies with no repentance, but it also involves apologies with prayerlessness. We don't pray for one another. We, we, we wrong someone, we say we're sorry, but we never pray for that person to be healed, the person that we wounded. And the person that we've apologized to, many times we'll push back on their responsibility to now pray for the one who's owning his sin. No, 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 we wanna leave them in a bad place. We wanna send them back to the starting point. We wanna cause them to go back several spaces. Come on, y'all know the game of sorry. We wanna embrace some form of sweet revenge. And the truth is, we're just prolonging our own healing and we can't get caught up in this game. In this game, no one wins. All we ever know is loss. That's why Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 26. In verse 41, to watch and pray. Notice, he didn't just say pray. He said, watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. Then he goes on to give us insight into the fact that our spirit is willing. Our spirit is willing to own what we've done. It's it's willing to embrace godly sorrow, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is always going to cater to pride that will keep us from taking responsibility for what we've done. The flesh is always going to cater to that vengeful spirit that just wants to see somebody else get theirs because after all, they hurt us so bad. Look at me. When are we gonna quit catering to the weakness of our flesh and start catering to the strength of his spirit so that we can be healed, whole, well, strong as his people? So the the word here that Jesus uses when he says watch and pray, in the original language, it means to stay awake. It means to be vigilant. It means to set guard. So what's Jesus telling us? He's telling us, when I bring you into repentance and you stop moving in the direction you were moving in that hurt so many people, and you turn around and you start embracing a, a whole different set of values and your behavior becomes different, he said, set watch over that. Set watch over that. Put a guard over that. Why? Because your flesh is weak. Your flesh is going to do everything it can to convince you to turn back around and revert back to that old style, that old way of living that you used to have. And and God said, keep watch over that. Put a guard in place. Because ultimately, what God wants to see, what people need to see, is we need to see the fruit of repentance in your life. John the Baptist stewarded a great move of God there in the first century. Um, Just before Jesus announced his own ministry, John the Baptist was stewarding a real move of God there in Judea. And people were turning from their sin and they were repenting and they were demonstrating their repentance by allowing John to baptize them in the Jordan River. You You may remember reading that in the Bible. Some religious leaders that were playing the game of sorry that were pretending to be something that they really weren't inside, decided they would go along with the crowd and they would put up, you know, they'd put on a good face and they would be baptized as well. But John the Baptist called them out on it. 
In Matthew's gospel, chapter three and verse eight, he said, produce fruit that is consistent with repentance. Look at me. Repentance always will be accompanied by fruitfulness. There'll be a, there'll be a, a fruitfulness to real repentance. When we truly embrace godly sorrow, it will begin to produce a different fruit from what we were bearing when we were headed the wrong direction. Are y'all following what I'm telling you? And sometimes you've got to set watch over your own life long enough to bear that fruit. If you go out to plant a, f- a fruit tree today, you're not going to go tomorrow and find fruit on that tree. You're going to have to cultivate it, right? You're going to have to prune it. You're going to have to water it. You're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to fertilize it. You're going to have to keep the pests from, you know, messing things up. What are you doing? You're keeping watch over your fruit tree until it bears fruit. Can I get somebody in this room to take the godly sorrow that God has brought you into and set watch over it until real fruit comes out of it that people can partake in and know that God is good. So, so here's what I've said to you so far. And, and I hope your heart, you know, I know this is somewhat of a hard word for you today. And I hope you're, you're going to wrap your heart around it with me. And just know, if you say you're sorry, but you continue to do the same things you say you're sorry for, you're just playing games. And listen, healing requires that we be truly sorry. That's why that's such a bad idea to play that game. Let me make one last observation for you today. And that is an attempt to worship God without true sorrow is just playing games. And, and listen, can, can, we, can we get real here? People play that game every weekend. They walk into this room and they sing things off the screen as though that's their life when the truth is they've lived the opposite all week long. We don't tell lies, we sing them. And, and we pretend to be something that we're not, we're just playing games. And today it's so important that we recognize any attempt to worship God without true sorrow is just a game that we're playing. Matthew's gospel, chapter five, verse 23 and 24. Here's what Jesus said. If you're, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First go, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. It's not that God doesn't want you coming to the altar. It's not that God doesn't want you presenting some gift to him. What he wants is he wants real repentance. And when we truly repent, that's where our worship begins. That's where real worship actually starts. What I'm saying to you today is apologies without repentance just creates duplicity. All of a sudden, we're two people. We're who we are all week long, and then we're who we are when we're in church or when we're around our religious friends. Y'all are about to make me walk down there and amen myself right here this morning. So, so God says, look, that's duplicity. And you know what duplicity is in a religious context? It's hypocrisy. It's the very thing that John the Baptist and Jesus pushed back so hard on within the lives of the Pharisees and the religious crowd. This is um, award season that we're in. Tonight's the Oscars and a couple of weeks ago, the Grammys. And you know, you know what happens this time of year. We award people for their art, 
that um, much of which is just perversion on the screen or in the music, right? And so we get to the award show and we, we give an award to MC Pervert because, you know, his music was so filthy and profane and, and he comes up on the stage and MC Pervert grabs his, his trophy and he's about to list all the people that he has to thank, but he wants to start with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I got to believe somewhere in heaven, Jesus is leaning over the balcony, throwing up because he didn't have anything to do with that award or, or with that music. Come on, come on, church, can we get real? But hey, 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 before we're quick to point our finger at MC Pervert, let's take a look in that mirror this morning. Let's see what we're attaching his name to in our own life. And realize and understand Listen, James chapter three, verse nine and 10 says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and father. And with it, we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Why? It's duplicity. It's hypocrisy. And God doesn't want us to allow that within our lives. He wants us to embrace godly sorrow and repent. It was a young boy that lived long, 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 long ago young Jewish boy. He lived in a town in Germany where his father was a prominent member of society and he was so proud of his father, successful businessman. And one day, the family moved. When the boy was a teenager, they moved and they moved to another German town where there was no synagogue. Before, the father had made sure that all of the activity of the family kind of centered around synagogue, but now they get to this new town, there's no synagogue. Everybody there's Lutheran. All of a sudden, one afternoon, dad comes home and he announces to the family, we're no longer gonna practice the Jewish faith. We're now Lutherans. And the family said, well, dad, dad why? why? Why would we abandon our traditions, our roots, our heritage, our faith? Why would we do that? And he said, listen, everybody in this town's Lutheran. And if my business is going to continue to succeed, if I'm going to continue to have good standing in this community, I've got to be what everybody else is. So we're no longer Jewish. Now we're Lutheran. It planted a seed of bitterness in the heart of that teenage boy who went on to move to Great Britain to attend college. History records how every afternoon you could find that boy at the university library with a book that he was scribbling in, page after page after page. That book became his manifesto that ultimately he led over half the nations of the world in allegiance to. He made sure that those following him would never make any room for God or religion within their life. Of course, the manifesto that I'm describing was the manifesto of the Communist Party and the boy was Karl Marx. What are you saying to us, pastor? I'm saying when we embrace this kind of duplicity, this kind of hypocrisy, when we play the game of sorrow, those we influence will be leading right into an atheist posture in life because no one's going to look at your duplicity and truly believe. Today, as a church, I'm calling on us to watch and pray, to wake up from this stupor that we've been in and to recognize and to respond that God wants true repentance within our lives 
And he wants godly sorrow to lead to real fruitfulness that people can see and truly believe in. Amen? Amen. Let's stop playing games.